This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Hey everyone, this is Chris Grasso with the Indie Spirituals Podcast. Uh, I wanted to record this quick message letting people know that I'm going to be away for roughly a month to two months tops doing promotion for my brand new book, Everything Mind, which is coming out October 1st and published by Sounds True. And thank you, Sounds True, for that. Uh, but in my absence, I want to run some older interviews that I did in 2014, the, these are a series of what I was calling uh, Indie Spiritualist Skype sessions that I was doing on my website, theindiespiritualist.com. These are a series of video interviews that I had done, uh, which I have transferred into audio format. So apologies that the quality is not exactly up to par. However, it's definitely listenable, and the people I have as guests, I think, are worthy of your time. I hope, at least after you listen to them, that you feel they are. So anyways, I just want to say a quick hello, and again, my apologies for my absence over the next month to two months, um, but in that time, I sincerely hope you enjoy these interviews. Thank you very much. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Grasso with TheIndieSpirituals.com. My guest today is Guy Newland. Guy holds a PhD in the history of religions from the University of Virginia. He's worked with a great many Tibetan scholars and taught at five Dharma centers, all within the Dalai Lama School of Tibetan Buddhism. Since 1988, he has been a professor at Central Michigan University. His publications include The Two Truths, Appearance and Reality, Introduction to Emptiness, which are all from Snowline Publications, and, in collaboration with others, Moonshadows, Conventional Truth in Buddhist Philosophy from Oxford. Guy, thank you so very much for being here today. Well, Chris, thanks for, thanks for having me. It's a delight. Right on. My pleasure. So, <laughs> Guy uh, has written, uh, as I already mentioned, some great books. I want to show people here. Um, this is a wonderful book called Appearance and Reality that I really enjoyed. This book is what really inspired me to reach out to Guy. It's called Introduction to Emptiness. Um, it really, for me, was a, a great eye-opener uh, on the subject of emptiness in Buddhism, which we'll discuss later on in the interview, um, as well as some other of Guy's work. So before we get into that, Guy, I wanted to go back a bit and talk about your first introduction to Buddhism. If you could tell us around what age you were, what was it about Buddhism that drew you to it, and had you 
sought out any other spiritual paths prior to that, or has it always been Buddhism for you? Um, okay, so I'm 58. When I was uh, in my uh, teenager, I guess in high school, I started getting interested in different kinds of spirituality with the idea of um, having an interest in something that involved uh, experience rather than um, than uh, doctrine or philosophy, per se, at that time. Um, and uh, so I was interested in mystical Christianity and Hinduism quite a bit. And when I went to the University of Virginia, um, <clears throat> there were courses on Hinduism that I liked quite a bit. There really wasn't anything good on uh, mystical Christianity in those days. And, um, and so I started taking classes on other kinds of things, uh, Sufism and Buddhism, and just, you know, seeing what kinds of things were, were out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess the, the first really serious connection I had with Buddhism was taking classes with Jeffrey Hopkins um, at the University of Virginia. He would about, you know, half or a third of the time bring a Tibetan Lama into class and translate for him. And then the rest of the time, he would just try to explain and make accessible for us, um, you know, what we were learning about. And... Um, I think, you know, the first thing to really understand how important compassion is in, in Buddhism and the, the emphasis on this sort of really deep, universal, inclusive um, caring, not as something that we, you know, look to a, a divine being for, but as something that we try to cultivate within ourselves through a systematic program of mind training and um, that that was very different from things that I read before, studied before, and and um, uh, I've actually written a little bit about this in a book called uh, Changing Minds, which is sort of a tribute to Jeffrey Hopkins. That uh, I feel like I really made a personal connection to Buddhism because of his the, his way of teaching that was like born out of his own um, personal experience with Buddhism, and that's what drew me in. Great, cool. And so we're going to get into, as I already mentioned, Introduction to Emptiness was a really important book for me to read, uh, and we're going to get into that. And something that just um, came up for me is I know you were saying uh, the, the importance of compassion and recognizing that that it's not necessarily from a you know a divine source outside of oneself. Um, yeah. And and I love that you'd mentioned you know you had the interest in the mystical Christianity as well as Hinduism and things of that nature. So. Something that I find interesting, some Buddhist teachers won't touch reconciling this. Some are very fond of reconciling it. But in Buddhism, you have, you know, emptiness, shunyata. Um, uh-huh. In Hinduism, you have Brahman, which is said to be comparatively a similar thing. It is, uh-huh. it's not an outside God. It's, a, it's an internal, you know, the uh-huh. source of all things. So before we get into actual emptiness, would you mind discussing that a little bit since you ha- seem to have a background in both? Uh, okay. Well, um, one thing is that I think, uh, I think, um, sometimes Buddhists and Hindus, um, exaggerate the difference between the traditions. Um, uh, not everybody does, but, you know, there's a tendency on the Hindu side to, to worry that the Buddhists are basically nihilists Mm. and on the Buddhist side to, to uh, be very afraid that the that the Hindus have uh, gone to a reifying extreme, um, 
And uh, I think uh, I think that the, that the differences between the traditions overall, when you take each tradition as a whole, um, are, are often exaggerated. They have so much more in common, not just their basic cosmology, but a lot about their spirituality and philosophy is much, much closer together than people uh, realize. Um, it happens to be the case that for me, one of the things that's kept me interested in Buddhism all these years has been the sort of peculiarity of the idea of emptiness. Mm. Um, that it's, it's, it's different from uh, what you see in Hinduism or mystical Christianity. And, and this idea that uh, the ultimate nature of reality is um, <laughs> in some sense um, something that it is itself um, ungraspable and empty um, and that, that it's kind of can be misleading to think of it as self-existent or a fundamental ground. And um, uh, in, in that way, there does seem to be a philosophical difference with, say, Advaita Vedanta in Hinduism. Um, and, uh, but, but there, you know, you have to recognize that there's a lot of different things within Hinduism and also a lot of different things within Buddhism. Sure. The particular kind of Buddhism that I'm interested in most philosophically, say in the Nagarjuna, Chandrakirti, Bhava Viveka, Tsongkhapa line, um, it tends to sort of emphasize this, this difference with, with Hinduism um, that we don't really want to talk about uh, um, something that's uh, a hidden form of monism. <laughs> sure. Instead, talk about emptiness as just a completely, um, in some sense, a completely common, ordinary fact about the world that's like occluded from us, and uh, and that it's it's um it's not the ground of being. And so, when you look at it that way, then um, then you do see. It's not like they all come. I'm, I don't want to say that they all come together as two ways of saying the same thing. Mm. Um, but of course, uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama always emphasizes that you know these these there are differences between the different religious traditions. I'm way past the idea of thinking that all the different religions in the world are all different ways of saying the same thing. They really are saying different things. But some of the most important things that they're saying for our day to day lives are very much the same. Mm. And that has to do with, you know, how to cultivate a good heart, how to, you know, be a more loving, compassionate person and be somebody who's contributing towards world peace um, and minimizing, you know, harm to people rather than um, rather than being on the other side of the equation. And in that regard, you know, religions um, have so much in common, much mm. more common than they do on these kinds of differences. Cool. Well, I, I really appreciate that, and and I do. I certainly agree that there are there's plenty of commonalities, and but you're right, they are saying separate things, and there's there's a lot. Yeah. It, a lot of it does break down to semantics, but um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm we're going to jump back into emptiness in a few minutes, and I would like to explore a little further um, the notion of the ground of all being and and why it's not that in Buddhism. But before uh -huh. we get there, I don't want to jump too far ahead. Uh -huh. I want to start with, as you mentioned, uh, Nagarjuna, and let's let's talk a bit about the two truths. So okay. if you don't mind, I want to quickly quote something out of your book, Appearance and Reality, that I showed a minute, just to give viewers a little background 
um, before we jump into this question. So I'm going to read this real quick, and then we'll get right into it. Um, in the book, it says that when someone comes to you seeking to understand Buddhism, where should you start? Should you elaborate on what it means to take refuge in the Three Jewels? Should you analyze the Four Noble Truths, taking a cue from the Buddha's first sermon? And then you, you mentioned Joshua Cutler, director of the Tibetan Buddhist Learning Center in Washington, New Jersey, had asked the Dalai Lama this question. And the Dalai Lama suggested that for many in the West today, the two truths, conventional truth and ultimate truth, is the best place to start. He argued that it is the best to lead people into the Dharma via exposure to philosophical reasoning and analysis of the nature of reality. Yeah. And I love that. And that's been profound for me. And that's, again, something you'll even hear in, in Vedanta talking about the, the two truths. But let's talk about it from Buddhist uh, yeah. perspective, that's as that's what you teach. So can you explain for viewers in a, in a as easily accessible way as possible <laughs> yeah. this grand idea? And of the, the two truths. truths. Of the two truths, yes. Yeah. <clears throat> well... Um, well, as, as you know, from reading that passage, the, the Dalai Lama was, was sort of acknowledging the reality of the situation that in a traditional context, you, you would never start with the two truths. <laughs> um, but, um, he, he's sort of assuming that, it, you know, if you're introducing, uh, people in a culture that's not familiar with Buddhism to it, that it's, and people have, you know, uh, an inclination towards reasoning that this is a much better place to start and that uh, if, if, if the uh, reasoning about dependent arising and emptiness seems to make some uh, sense to people, then they can make a connection and be drawn deeper into the tradition. That was his idea. So uh, historically, you know, the, uh, it seems, speaking as a, as a scholar of Buddhism, that the notion of two truths seemed to emerge um, out of the problem of interpreting uh, the way that Buddha spoke about things. So um, sometimes Buddha would say, uh, you know, what what do we mean by a person? You know, when we search, that the, the person ends up being like a like a chariot. When you search for the person, you don't actually find something that you can pin down and point out that is the person. And um, sort of so it seems like the Buddha is sort of saying that. Um, well, if you want, just took it out of context that he sort of seemed to be denying the actuality or the reality of persons. But then in other places, he talks about persons uh, as, of course, being what this is all about, trying to help people who are suffering. And he speaks of himself as a person who, you know, did various things such as got up from underneath the tree and went out to teach and preach in order to help other persons who were suffering. So the question is, how do you reconcile these different modes of discourse, one in which you're analyzing and deconstructing ordinary things that we sort of take as real, and, and one in which you're just sort of using those, those sort of terms, which seem to be useful, to make some other point. <laughs> and um, that seems to be where this kind of discourse um, about the two truths started. That there's some things, and and then different, as you know from appearance and reality, different Buddhist schools could disagree about what which things. But some things that, um, <clears throat> when analyzed, seem to fall apart or or can't be pinned down. Um, that we can talk about them um, in an ordinary way, but it's um, it's not the way they really are. They're not ultimately findable in that way that they appear. 
And then maybe there are there are is another category, um, which is the the ultimate way that things are. That what you find when you say what is this really, and you analyze it in some way, taking it apart or breaking it down with your mind analytically, and what it, what do you come to at the end of that analysis? So some people thought you know that a person is a an abstraction, so to speak, a construct that's been overlaid on some underlying realities that are actually real. And those would be called dharmas, you know, little tiny moments of experience or matter that were irreducible bits of reality, which we normally don't experience at all, but are actually real. And over the top of this, there's this uh, construction of a person which is not actually findable that's been overlaid. And so that began to be the way people thought about, well, there's an ultimate way that things are that only the meditator can penetrate to. And when they do, they see that their attachment to the person (laughs) is inherently real, dissolves. Mm. Okay. But then as Buddhist philosophy continued along, you know, you had the Madhyamaka philosophy say, well, all these different categories of dharmas, the things that you think are ultimately real when you do this analysis, when you analyze closely enough, none of those hold up either. And that's where you get to the idea that it's not just the person that is like in some sense a conceptual designation or a construct that exists in relationship to something else. It's that everything is like that. Mm. Everything is like that. Even, you know, atoms and quarks and, and, you know, things that seem very solid and seem things that seem real and seem things that seem really small and, you know, sort of physically irreducible that nothing really exists in and of itself. Everything exists only in relationship to other things. And so you never get to uh, some graspable bottom of, of what is like ultimately real. Mm. And in some sense, there isn't anything that exists ultimately. Things, all things exist conventionally. And this idea that there isn't anything at all, emptiness or Buddha or anything at all, that exists in and of itself and is therefore ultimately graspable, that is the idea of emptiness, the idea that there that you don't at the bottom come to, to some uh, graspable thing, but you come to the ultimate truth of things is their ultimate ungraspability or emptiness of any graspable nature within them. Mm. So the idea of the two truths is that these two things, this ultimate ungraspability and yet conventional uh, practical usability, are always right there together. It's like, you, you know, to start with, you could think of it as two sides of the same coin. But then you have to realize it's really like a coin where the heads goes all the way through and the tails comes all the way through to the other side. So it's both heads and tails all the way through. Right. That's what it is. I mean, every, everything you can think of, every speck of matter, every moment of experience is fully and completely both a conventional and an ultimate reality. The difference is how you look at it. <laughs> mm. If you look at it with, from the point of view, what is this really? You only come to emptiness. If you look at it from the point of view of, well, how is this practically useful to me operating day to day? Then you see a conventional nature, which is relative to your standpoint as, as a, a, a human rather than an ant, for example. Right. <laughs> so relatively speaking. They have different... Uh, different correct perceptions. Right on. So 
we'll, again, we'll get into emptiness in a second, but so just for viewers that aren't entirely familiar, the empty, or I'm sorry, the relative speaking on the day-to-day things, like I'm looking at my MacBook right now as I'm speaking to you. Yeah. So in a conventional sense, here's this MacBook, but it's okay. it's a form of dependent arising because without it, the sum total of its parts, it wouldn't be a MacBook, correct? Right. It's so there, it's it's empty of an inherent self. Right. It doesn't have a self nature. This is not. There isn't anything like the MacBook that can exist in and of itself. So the MacBook uh, depends upon the existence of Apple Corporation, and um, and then when you say, well, yeah, but what is this Apple Corporation? It's the same thing. Just like the MacBook is broken into pieces. You can't really find the corporation. People used to think that the soul of the corporation or the essence of the corporation was Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. Then Steve Jobs dies, and then Apple still goes along. You know, at the continuum flows downstream of the corporation. So, um, yeah, things. It's really hard to get used to this idea because it's so different from the way we usually think. We think of things as like are existing out there on their own side, sort of objectively. Right. But really, we are constantly ascribing or imputing or assigning or labeling them um, in a way that is relative to our particular perspective. Um, there's a lot of different ways to think about this. And when I teach it in class, uh, I try, you know, writing a big letter up on the board. <laughs> and then people have the sense that they're just passively receiving the information that the professor's written on the board. But then it's very easy to see that this is an illusion that we've just learned to ascribe, you know, the, the name A in relationship to that letter and that we're actually um, participating in constituting as it as as an a mm. and even though it's just a convention that we've learned how to all do this together one two three it's got the right shape a and then assign that identity then we don't even notice that we're doing it and we experience ourselves as passive recipients of that right well it's like that with everything it's harder to understand like how that works with a mountain than it is with a letter but it is the same thing you know, we've, we've learned that when you see certain kinds of shapes and of certain sorts of sizes, you know, and then you, it, it's appropriate in terms of working around in the world to identify that or label that as mountain, just like we label something else as A. And that, it's like that with everything. There, there isn't any, like, there, there are things that exist out in the world, but we don't, we, as soon as you try to say what they, because it's not that everything's just in our mind. Right. But as soon as you try to say what they are and talk about them, you're only doing it in relationship to your point of view and you're participating in constructing them as that. Right. And they can be legitimately constructed in very different ways from the point of view of different species. It's different, you know, like Gary Snyder gives the example of thinking about, a, you know, he's playing with uh, Dogen actually and gives these things about like, well, there's a certain way that a mountain goat sees a real narrow, rocky ledge on the side of a cliff, and there's a very different way that I see it. <laughs> I see it as like something that is like right before I die, you know. Right. Whereas the goat sees it as like a place that it can be safe, like a resting place. It's home from a, a, it's a refuge from a predator, and 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 that in that way, you know, you're sort of like well, you're seeing sort of the same thing, but it means something completely different. But if you take spiders and other, you know, animals that bats and animals that have different sense powers than ours, you can see that they legitimately, correctly, adaptively 
experience the world in the same place in the same time, radically different ways. And um, that's, that is an indication that although there is a world, it isn't objectively set up as having certain content except relative to the to different kinds of perceivers. Mm. And that, that, that's the hardest thing to get. People can start by understanding that like office buildings didn't just spontaneously appear, that they depended upon causes and conditions Right. And they also depend on parts, right? And the harder thing to get used to is that there's a subtle way in which everything also depends upon being labeled or designated in order to be that. Mm. I mean, there's, there's something that's there, but um, it only becomes correct to designate it as, you know, a telephone relative to the perspective of, of a human, you know, who knows right. how to use a telephone. And, for the spider, it's actually not a telephone, <laughs> right? It's right. Not, it's something, right. something there that's in a, in the way, but it's yeah. not actually a telephone, right? And so the telephone, it seems to me to be like objectively a telephone from its own side, but that really isn't the case. It's a telephone in, correctly in an interrelated, dependent way with me, with us, mm, right? right? So when we think about it, it just like looks to me like, oh, it's a telephone just from its own side, naturally appearing, because it must have some kind of telephone nature over there. That's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that's where, that's the idea is that's how we get led astray. Right. Okay, so that, I think that covers the relative side very well, and then it um, gives us a look uh, into that. And now when we go to the the other side of the same coin that's emptiness right that's intertwining with the with both sides so you said before according to buddhism we're not talking about the ground of all being and um if i heard you correctly and mm -hmm. you know you look at things like physics i'm no physicist but you know a very lay person can understand that you you go down to the subatomic particles and quarks and in them is an energy. It's not a material, but there's an energy. And so, you know, we have the unified field theory and the Planck scale and things of that nature. So string could, theory. in string theory, right, right. So if you could talk a bit about the, the way Buddhism sees emptiness versus more traditional like physics or, you know, Vedanta, like I've mentioned again, they'll say Brahman, you know, I think it's more in line of what physics is saying today. So if you can mm. chat about that a little bit. Mm. Well, um, I like to be really careful about um, making comparisons between, um, uh, you know, quantum mechanics and uh, physics and Buddhist philosophy. Sure. I don't, I don't, uh, sometimes, you know, uh, people can be, uh, jump too quickly to conclusions about these things. But uh, um, I know that His Holiness the Dalai Lama is not dismissive of these comparisons. He has he's alluded to some of these things himself in terms of the um, the observer participation problem, the measurement problem. Right. You know, when you, you you always somehow get entangled with things at, when you're trying to make these measurements, and you can't you can't figure out what they are objectively on their own side apart from your participation in the process of making the measurement. And, and, and without saying that that's the same thing as what I'm trying to describe in Buddhist philosophy, um, it could be that it's, it's pointing at, at a similar kind of thing or that it's, you know, it's, that it could be convergent 
with the kind of thing that I'm talking about, that um, Newtonian physics tends to operate from the idea that they're um, objectively real objects that have certain properties in and of themselves. Um, whereas we, when we've started analyzing at the quantum level, that's become problematized even within science. Um, and uh, this has caused people a lot of consternation. You know, you have these, 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 uh, these uh, quantum mechanics equations that correctly predict what's going to happen, but people don't have, and you can use them to, in, in, in a lab. But what, um, what people don't have is any good way to conceptualize what the world is like or make a picture of their mind of what a world is like in which these kinds of things can be true. Mm. How can something be both a wave and a particle, right? How can it be that things, you know, don't, aren't in any particular place until we look at them, that, that, the, that, the, that the, you know, the cat is in a suspended state between alive and dead until we open the box. This is just like very, very hard to figure out, you know, yeah like how to put it into our, our brain, the way our brains are used to making sense out of the world, you know, back from Neolithic times and before, right. it just does not, like, fit together. Um, so it could be that um, there are certain limits to what um, the human mind is, um, is able to uh, model, you know, to represent internally and it could be that in different ways um, you know that, that physics approaching things from the scientific side has pushed its analysis of how things exist to the point where it's come up against um, the same these same kind of limitations or parallel kinds of limitations to the ones that religions have been talking about when they say that you know it's something that uh, we will talk about, but you know that the, the Tao that can be spoken about is not the true Tao, and so forth. You have that kind of statement in every in every tradition, and it, it's possible that there's some overlap. You know that when you start thinking about the ultimate, you come up against um, ineffability, undescribability, paradox, um, apparent contradiction, and people um, try to come up with the best way to think about it they can make things work but that uh, you know they kind of all agree that it doesn't fit into our heads the actual way that reality is the closer you look at it the less well it actually can be modeled within sure. our brains right um, I think this is true in Buddhism I mean you know from reading my books that Tsongkhapa and the whole Gelugpa order really emphasizes that it's necessary and possible to make get a real con clear conceptual picture of these things. But um, this is a stepping stone to having a direct experience of reality that um, is actually not expressible in the way it actually is. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, well, I mean, a Gelukpa Lama, who was a great scholar, told me, he said, well, when you, when you see things as they are, you don't need to read any more books. Mm. And it's like... Um, and that's like the most bookish, you know, tradition that there is. Um, you know, it includes a famous quote that's in the, in the book you were just reading where one of the Kadamba Lamas says, uh, you know, some people like to brag that they've only read one little book and other people are ashamed of it. 
but it doesn't matter because they'll never become fully awake until they've read a whole yaks load of books, right? So, so it's true, you know, you have to like open your mind up to a lot of these different ideas and it, it does help to, to, to think about things. Um, but um, if you think that ultimately you will be able to think your way into making a perfect model of reality in your mind, um, that, that you can conceptually understand things just as they are, then ultimately it falls short. Yeah, right, right. Well, thank you for, for, uh, for explaining that. I definitely uh, appreciate it. So someone who's listening right now, and I mean, I'm sure you've heard this a lot of, it's just a, an unfortunate stigma attached to Buddhism from a lot of people that don't actually understand it. Is you know you hear these teachings on emptiness and dependent arising, and a lot of people will look at it and say, you know, well, it's very nihilistic. It's a very uh, bleak kind of teaching, and um, uh, I think those that understand it recognize the, the significance that it's actually helping an individual to lessen that grasping for the material. And there's a lot of peace in this teaching. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the benefits, you know, like uh -huh. the benefits of understanding emptiness and, and Buddhism and, and our selfless nature. Well, um, of course, you know, um, the idea is here that um, we tend to, we suffer unnecessarily because we don't see things the way they are. Mm -hmm. So we tend to see them as being out there and, that it, and then we can grasp hold of them and then we'll be we'll be happier when we get a hold of a you know a better telephone or a better car or a better house and uh and the problem is that um you know things don't really have a graspable nature they're they're continuously changing and disintegrating and they exist only in relationship to other things so um they're not, they don't really it, it occurred to me you know when i was thinking about these things that you know, if, if there were really were objectively real graspable things which we could get hold of and thereby find peace and contentment and happiness, then Buddha was like the worst teacher ever because <laughs> he's, misguided, he's misled people into not uh, uh, getting what will actually make them happy. But you see so many people around the world and, you know, it's the story of Siddhartha's life is a classic story. It's, you know, you can have everything materially and then be just as miserable. Yeah. And so grasping onto um, things doesn't seem to work as, as a path to peace. And then you can have the same thing about grasping onto special experiences, right? As Trumpo Rinpoche pointed out, you know, we can become grasping about having special experiences too. Sure. So there's that's, that's one thing is that, you know, we find a kind of... Um, uh, a, a, a piece that's like you know, by being more in accord with reality, seeing things as they are, not thinking that by grasping hold of them we can sort of you know magically make ourselves happy. But it's not just about our own um, liberation from that cycle. Right. It's also about helping other people, helping others. Um, you know, we in the Mahayana tradition, we especially emphasize the idea that from the very beginning, you should be motivated by by trying to include as you know as many beings as possible in your motivation for doing your practice. And um, there's a lot of ways in which it's um, it becomes possible to include more beings 
because you don't see it as like um, an addition of an infinite number of objectively real beings. <laughs> that is, all of these beings exist interdependently. None of them exist in and of themselves. And um, there isn't any like fixed limitation. It, like I feel maybe that there's only so many people that I can take care of. And maybe that's true at this particular moment, right? But there's all different kinds of ways in which, in which beings can change to be able to do much more than they're able to now. We don't have a fixed nature because we're empty. And therefore, it's possible for us to change into beings who can help many more people much more effectively than what we're able to do now. That's because, so that's, I'm telling you that that's a way that emptiness has to do not just with freeing ourselves from cycles of dissatisfaction based on an unrealistic view of the world, but it also sort of liberates us to include other beings uh, that, you know, sort of um, not have self-imposed a priori limitations about what we're capable of doing in terms of helping others. Um, I think it helps people with compassion fatigue, you know, to, to meditate on emptiness and dissolve everything into emptiness for a while and then you know, rise back in and everybody. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Thank you so much, Guy. The last couple of questions I have, you know, we've gotten into some pretty heavy stuff. So I wanted to end on a little bit of a lighter note for viewers and uh-huh. talk first, first my last two. And let's talk about some books. You know, here, here uh-huh. you are, this Buddhist scholar. What are some things, who are some authors? What are some books that you appreciate? They can be Buddhist, but are, is there anything outside of Buddhism, even outside of spirituality, any books, authors, or I know you were saying before the example of read one book and I've got it all. It's all good. So Uh, it's like the idea there of, um, you know, yogis who have a kind of anti-intellectualist streak. And so there can be a certain pride about having one book, right? No. um, Yeah. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a few books. And these are books that I connect to, you know, spiritually as a person separate from, you know, anything that's within my realm of knowledge um, as a particular scholar. Hmm. Um, uh, three of my favorite books, one is, uh, is uh, Zen Master Raven by Robert Aiken Roshi. This is Robert Aiken Roshi, people know, is like a, a Zen teacher who um, uh, was in Maui, lived in Maui, and taught for many years. And... Um, uh, he wrote so many different books that were really beautiful um, introductions and explanations of uh, Zen practice. And then uh, before he died, he wrote one last book, which is very strange and seems to be just a collection, sort of like Zen Jataka stories. They're all these little animal stories. And people haven't really given it as much attention as it deserves. This is like, there's many, it's sort of like a, a spiritual biography, you know, it's, he's telling his up the story of his own life, possibly through this, these animal characters. And it's like, where you could take it as a, as a 20th century American koan collection. Hmm. Uh, it really is that in some sense. And this is a, this is a book that, you know, I don't come from a basis in Zen practice, but it's really what I found is by understanding Buddhist philosophy, I can, you know, I can look at these stories and often I can, you know, understand what's going on at a conceptual level, right? Because I, because they're playing with the same pieces, the two truths and so forth. 
And um, so that's one book I really like. Another book which I, I think might have already alluded to is Gary Snyder's book, Practice of the Wild. Of course, Gary Snyder is a great uh, American Buddhist poet, Pulitzer Prize winner. But he's not as well known for this book of essays, Practice of the Wild, in which he really, you know, explains um, his way of being a Buddhist, which is like intentionally and very thoroughly grounded in Turtle Island, you know, in being a person of this continent and this of this place and this time, um, not trying to be, you know, a Tibetan Buddhist or, you know, a Japanese Buddhist in America, but like Snyder's uh, uh, the, our ancestor in terms of really trying to to figure out what it means to be an American Buddhist and uh, and and his fullest expression of this in terms of especially the connections with ecology is in uh, Practice of the Wild and one of my very favorite books in the whole world is uh, is Zhuangzi uh, the Taoist author um, his writings are usually just self-titled Zhuangzi and uh, Zhuangzi has so many ideas that overlap with Buddhist philosophy. I don't want to say that it's exactly the same, right. but it has so much compatibility with Buddhist philosophy. And um, it's not elaborated as a, as a, in a systematic way. It's more you know, like a series of stories and dialogues. Um, so it's a kind of in the mode of inquiry rather in the mode of systematic exposition. But what's great about it is he hits many of the same themes that you find in Buddhist tradition, but it's constantly infused with a kind of comic, poetic, open, open-ended spirit rather than in the mode of let's kind of logically present a pre-existing system. Mm. And uh, yeah, I find it enormously liberating to read Zhuangzi and... Uh, and I have, <laughs> like uh, over decades, you know, I taught it again this semester. And um, it's these, are, these three books that I mentioned, they're not necessarily the easiest things to read, but they're not scholarly works. They're, they're, they're accessible. Um, they reward rereading. Uh, all, right. of all three have fallen apart. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Because when you read it again, you keep seeing things that you didn't quite get before. Sure. Sure. Well, thanks for sharing those. Um, and the last question, I was jazzed to see this because you know, we're friends over on the Facebook there. And yeah. I, was, I was checking out your profile and I always like yeah. to see whether people like musically. Um, yeah. And I was psyched. Especially updated in terms of that. But yeah. Well, I, I love, I mean, so I saw, you know, we had Hendrix, we had Radiohead, the Pixies, yeah. Sonic Youth, who I love. Sonic uh, so great. Yeah, so I'm like, wow, all right, great. He's not only a, a brilliant, you know, teacher of Buddhism, but he's also got some great taste in music. So similar huh. to the, the, the author book question, you know, what are some of your favorite bands or albums and a little bit of the why behind that? Yeah, well, I, I think I was, um, I think I really like, um, art in general like mm. i was thinking it's not really limited to to music i like great films i like um great paintings and sculptures i like I, i've got I, I like opera i like classical music um <laughs> and um and i like i like certain kinds of rock music really a great deal i've gone to pitchfork music festival in chicago three years in a row and this will be my fourth year in a row and um, I'm pretty much the oldest person there, <laughs> which is interesting. Um, yeah, I like um, 
I like TV on the radio. Yeah. Uh, the really good band. Um, I don't know. I think maybe you know, I, one element of it is that I have no talent in this area myself. <laughs> and so I'm kind of like a little bit in awe of these people who can do things with violins and, and, and with their voices that are so beautiful. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's it's like all over the world, religions include music, for example. Yeah. Um, you just, uh, Confucius was very explicit in saying that, you know, music is part of moral education. It, it helps us... Um, know ourselves better by seeing what kinds of feelings arise in us and, and the way we're moved by, by, by seeing, um, uh, say, in this museum in Sarnath, they have a fantastically luminous, beautiful statue of Shakyamuni Buddha. And it just, you know, it affects people. Mm-hmm. And um, the Nelson Atkins Museum in Kansas City, they have a, a Guan Yin statue. And when you look at it, it just, I don't know, it moves something in you that's different from reading a book where people are talking about compassion. Sure. And um, uh, it's not just Buddhist art, but, you know, like um, I saw Michelangelo's David. <clears throat> and I, I never understood why people like that uh, in pictures. <laughs> yeah. But when you actually go to see it, you're saying, oh. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. It just really does something. It creates an experience. And... Um, yeah, this like art has this ability to move us and and to touch us in in different ways, um, and it, it you know it puts you, it gets you in touch with a totally different part of yourself, or in my case, different part of myself. I tend to be intellectual, rational, logical, trying to make sense of the world, put things together, and then like art is like oh, opening up the other side of my brain for a little bit of exercise as well, yeah. Yeah. and. Um, yeah, it's like in so many different ways. It can be like um, emotionally, obviously, but I just, I was thinking of one of, when I, w- I went to Barcelona a couple of years ago and uh, I saw, you know, Miro, my mind got blown open by Miro and, and they have this crazy guy, Gaudi, who has all these, this amazing cathedral there and all this strange sculpture. It's just, it's just like uh, so amazing. Mm-hmm. But one of the weirdest things that I saw that I can't get out of my mind was a piece of conceptual art over in the Raval area by the Museum of Contemporary Art. There's this like empty church that's been desanctified. It's totally empty. And it has a sign out front that says Contemporary Art Exhibition. You go in and there's nothing there, but then you hear these weird crackling sounds. You can't see where they're coming from. So you walk up to the front and over on the side up in the front, there's a plastic water bottle like, like this one. And it's got a suitcase leaning on it like a roller bag from the from somebody a tourist would use on an airplane or a business person and the roller bag is leaning on the bottle and slowly crushing it so it's making this kind of sound and the sound is being picked up by all these mics and reverberating through through the 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 empty church and i'm just looking at this and i'm going Oh my God! They, this is like this whole church is dedicated to this exhibition about. Uh, uh, and I'm like, this. You know, at first I was like, I felt like I'd sort of been taken, and then I <laughs> then I felt like I came to Barcelona to see their art, and I feel like this piece of art is pointing right back at me, and, and you know, saying, you know, pointing back at my own nature yeah. as as the trap, the art tourist. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Oh, it's beautiful. And that was like a that was different from. Uh, you know, seeing a Guan Yin. It's like a totally different way that 
um, art can open up your mind. So, mm. yeah, I don't. I I love uh, really good rock music. I mean, Hendrix is is an inconceivably fantastic artist, but it's not just like it's not just that. <laughs> it's there's so many different kinds of ways in which. Um, you know, art connects to us on a different level than just logically analyzing things. Yeah. yeah. I love what you said about the art. I was in, um, I mean, I've had plenty of experiences around it as well. And for me, I can't do art. I'm a musician, but I have no artistic uh-huh. talent. So I'm like you with music. I'm like, whoa. But yeah. I, was, I was in Rome in 2005. And uh-huh. I'm, I'm not a fan of Catholicism personally to each their own, but it's not uh-huh. my cup of tea. But I did the Vatican. And I will tell you, I was... Uh, touched especially when i went into the sistine chapel and just being there i I was it was a very surreal beautiful experience you know and it really touched my heart and uh so yeah i I love that you brought up art and it's not just specifically music i mean all form mediums of art which would be the umbrella of film and whatnot it's all yeah i like i mean the thing is with people like sonic youth and um is a good example because um I mean, this is a particular subset of this issue of just really connecting with uh, uh, some kind of emotion and intensity in the music. That's what I feel like is like, you know, I don't know, Brad Warner has this thing and some of the other, Noah Levine, I guess, too, about, um, you know, punk being a kind of like way of deconstructing sort of artificial respect for, for things in the world and that the only thing that punk doesn't punk is punk itself and <laughs> go to the heart sutra, right? That's, that's Brad Warner. And, um, you know, there's something to that, um, that there's like a, a kind of, um, not wanting to just accept, uh, the world as it's been handed to us attitude, a will being willing to break things open and, and question what we're told about how things are. And, and, and I think that, you know, the connection I would make to Buddhism about that is that, you know, essentially what I've been trying to say is that we take things at face value. They appear to us as independently and objectively real. And we're wrong. <laughs> we're wrong, like, yeah. all the time about yeah. that. And so... It's not that these things don't exist, but they really don't exist at all the way they appear to us. And, um, and um, so that kind of like, what do you say? Challenging the apparently given status quo, I guess, is the connection. Yeah. Sort of, you could say rage against the machine. I mean, that's not one of my bands, but it's like, yeah, it's like that. There has to be a ferocious intensity yeah. of, the, of the Bodhisattva's wisdom that like breaks through of cyclic existence as like the world as it's given to us and we're supposed to believe in. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I also grew up punk hardcore. It did that for me. And I love seeing increasing amounts of 30-somethings, 40-somethings that grew up in the punk hardcore scene sitting in sanghas and meditation. You know, yeah. it's like it was a natural progression for many people. They were looking for that right. authenticity in yeah. their teenage years and they found it later in Buddhism or uh, elsewhere. But I see a yeah. lot of it in Buddhism, so that's great. So good, good comparison. So, guys, the last thing before we wrap this up is if you could let people know where they can find your books online. And I also want to ask, are you working on anything new or, or what are you up to these days? Um, well, um, of course, there's all the regular mega bookseller places that you can you can find my books. Um, Snow Lion, which published a lot of my books, um, has been absorbed into Shambhala uh, publishing now. 
So um, their website is a place to, to find my things um, nowadays. I guess they still have a snow lion imprint within, within Shambhala. And um, I have the, uh, the newest thing that will probably come out. Uh, you mentioned, uh, you, you read at the beginning, this book, Moon Shadows, is like a, a collaboration with a bunch of uh, philosophers. Um, and even though I'm not officially trained as a philosopher, they let me be in the club. Nice. And we call the club the Cowherds. And so we did this book that's kind of trying to take Buddhism seriously as philosophy, like doing it from within the vocabulary and the culture of Western philosophy, but taking the Buddhist philosophy seriously and engaging it on that level. And um, this book is part of that project, but we have another one coming out um, that's in the same vein. So that is the next thing that will probably come out for me. Um, there's a number of other things that I'm working on, but um, frankly, I'm in a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a stall professionally right now because of uh, um, my wife died in November, and that's kind of like made it so that my brain is not um, is only gradually reacquiring the ability to focus enough to do scholarship. <laughs> sure, but sure. I'm 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 getting there, but it's not quite all the way there yet. Well, I did not know that. My condolences. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I'm very sorry to hear that. Um, but you know, I, I want to say thank you for uh, for your work. As I told you personally, it's been a tremendous help in my path. And as you shared before the call, that other stranger who happened to call you and tell you how great it was. So it's oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's but, wonderful that you're putting this out there in the world. So. Well, thank you so much. I'm glad that, um, you know, people who write books, I, I, this is something that I learned. Um, uh, a lot of people, you know, some people maybe if you write the Harry Potter books, then you don't need anybody else to, to tell you that your work is being read and appreciated. But a lot of people like, for example, Gary Snyder, when I found his books to be really valuable, I found his email and wrote him, wrote him fan mail yeah. and, and also, you know, ask him some questions and he wrote me back. And like, yeah, a lot of people are not um, uh, so famous that they don't answer their emails. And yeah. um, it, is, it is helpful for me to, because we do this work alone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's helpful to see that there actually are people who are benefiting from it and get that gives us a, like more encouragement to keep doing it. Yeah, I, I, I understand completely. So the encouragement's here, my friend. We we appreciate your work. Thanks. I will continue. Thanks, to, Fred. Oh, for sure. I'll continue to spread the good word. And and Gary, thanks. Or Gary, guy. I'm thinking yeah. of Gary. You just mentioned <laughs> guy. Thank you so much for your time. It's really been a pleasure speaking with you. Oh well, it's been a, it's been great. Yeah, I'm I'm delighted to meet you. Cool, yeah. and vice versa. Okay. All right. So, um, well, thank you for your time, and uh, I'll have a link up on the page and where people can find your your work over at Shambhala. And uh, and thanks again. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thanks, Chris. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, 
family and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H E L P.com slash be here now.